How do you choose to participate in a church? What are you looking for? Are you looking for a church that's comfortable and uh, basically a cruise ship? Some of you didn't uh, catch that first part of that video because y'all were talking. I would have imagined that by elementary school you would know that when the lights go down, it's time to choose. But are you choosing a church to be a cruise ship? Or are you understanding that maybe the church is supposed to be something a little, little different than that? We can actually have the lights on. That would be good. In the early 50s, the United States government finally finished a $78 million troop carrier for the Navy. It's called the SS United States. The purpose of the SS United States was that it would carry 15,000 troops in times of war, and it was uh, designed to outrun any other ship in the world and get these uh, troops any place in the world within 10 days. It was the fastest, most reliable troop carrier in the world to that date. The only catch, it never, ever carried troops at least not in any official capacity. Um, It it instead became a luxury liner for presidents and heads of state and a variety of other celebrities who traveled um, in the 17 years of her service. As a luxury liner, she had 695 staterooms, four dining rooms, three bars, two theaters, a heated pool, 19 elevators, and the comfort of the world's first fully air-conditioned passenger ship. (laughs) Designed to take troops into war, she would never, ever be used for her purpose. She became more of an indulgence for the wealthy who desired to cruise uh, the Atlantic peacefully. I want to talk today about a couple of shifts. As we are in the book of Acts and looking at the early church, There is, we are now coming to the chapter in Acts where there's a shift in focus. Uh, The first part of the the, uh, book, we began to look at Peter and his ministry. And now we come to a a chapter where Peter sort of fades out of the narrative. And a new primary player comes into into the forefront, the, the apostle Paul. People say, well, why this shift? Why, why is there this shift? Well, Peter, if you recall from the Gospels, had been given the keys to the kingdom by Jesus. And as the story of the early churches played out, we see how practically that was taking place. As Peter was there on the day of Pentecost, when the Jews would receive the Holy Spirit, he kind of unlocked their door. And then later on, when the Samaritans received the Holy Spirit, they called in Peter. And he kind of unlocked that door. And then finally, a couple weeks ago, we saw how Peter went to the home of Cornelius, a a Gentile. And because he went there, now the Gentiles were ushered into the plan of salvation and redemption. And he basically unlocked the doors for the Gentiles as well. And so for Peter getting the keys to the kingdom, that doesn't mean like all those jokes that he's at the pearly gates. Uh, deciding who gets to come in and who doesn't get to come in, it it means that he had the privilege of sharing the gospel with these three groups of people and bringing the gospel message to the entire world. And so by chapter 13, the mission is complete 
and the doors have been unlocked. And so Luke isn't really concerned with Peter's ministry anymore. Now there's a new soldier at the front of this battle, and that is the Apostle Paul. Now that brings us to the second shift that I want you to understand. Because where Luke takes us from this point on in the book of Acts, it's like the SS United States, but in reverse. Because he is confronting now any misgivings about the mission of the church global. It shows us that we are not to serve as a cruise ship as much as we are to serve as a battleship. Now, I I would imagine that it's not difficult for those of you in this room who have served overseas in the armed forces in the Middle East to, to know what a war zone looks like. It's uh, pretty easy to understand the people who live there in Afghanistan or Iraq, uh, the civilians, they understand what it's like to live in a war zone where bombings are a common occurrence and schools are used as military posts and children, are, they go to school in constant danger and going to sleep at night. Families are, are, uh, they are lulled to sleep by the sound of the bombs and they are reminded that they are living in a war zone. Sometimes I believe that you and I as Christians, we forget that we are living also in a war zone. You see, we've been given the gospel message to take into this world. Well, as we do that, as the gospel advances, the enemy is not just going to roll over and play dead and allow all of this territory that he once had to, to, to slip away from his control. In 1 Peter, we're told that our enemy is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, so we are called to be alert. So life in God's kingdom is not just enjoying the blessings, and there are a lot of them, and knowing that we've got an eternal destiny in heaven. Life in God's kingdom actually involves fighting a battle, a battle for men's souls. See, our enemy are not the people that oppose us. Our enemy is real. He is the devil. Ephesians chapter 6 Paul tells us that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. You might think your problem is with that neighbor or that that family member that is just antagonistic or a government that just keeps pushing their way into our lives and taking away our freedoms of religion. You might think that they are the enemy, but Paul says we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities and the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. See, Paul is saying, listen, what's at stake here are the lives and the souls of people. They are not our enemy. They are actually prisoners of war. Our enemy, the devil, seeks to kill and steal and destroy people's souls. And so from Acts chapter 13 on to the end of the book, we're going to see Paul fighting that battle and calling us to the battleship stations as well. We're going to be in Acts chapter 13, just the first part today. So if you'll go there, I'm going to begin in verse 1 as Luke continues his narrative. Luke tells us in the church at Antioch, and Antioch would have been uh, north of Jerusalem in Syria. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul 
for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Now this church up in Syria, the church in Antioch, that would have been a great place, a logical place to be a launching pad for the gospel rather than a lounging pad because it was comprised of a a diverse group of people. Just looking at the list of leaders here in in the first few uh, verses of chapter 13 tells us that you've got guys from Cyprus and from Africa and from Jerusalem and from all sorts of backgrounds that these guys have figured out that God's kingdom is to include all people from all nations. And that idea was represented fairly well in their own diversity of leadership. We also see that they were very much committed to the Holy Spirit empowering them, that this was not a man-made thing, that they were praying and fasting and listening for the direction of the Holy Spirit. They knew that they needed his guidance and strength. And as they begin to seek God's will, God began to speak to them, and the Holy Spirit identified two men, Barnabas and Saul. Now, Barnabas, we've heard of before. He was that son of encouragement who gave money to the church, who stood by Saul when he was converted from the persecutor of the church to a believer. He's the one also that the church of Jerusalem sent up to Antioch to check things out to make sure that they had correct doctrine. So here's Barnabas and Saul. Yes, that's Saul, the one who used to kill Christians, now being used by the Holy Spirit for a very unique work. God, if you recall from a couple weeks ago, is a missionary God. God's Spirit is a sending Spirit, whether it is overseas or just in your neighborhood. God is in the business of sending us out into the battlefield And Paul and Barnabas are now enlisted in this mission to take God's glory, his light, into a dark and chaotic world to win back the territory surrendered to the enemy through sin. So now the next part of the story, we're going to find them going into all of these different places. And we're going to find out that Paul's MO is going to be to go to the Jews first, to the synagogues, why? Because though God had called him to be the, the, uh, the apostle to the Gentiles, his heart is still connected with his fellow Jews, and he always wanted to try to win them back as well. And now we're going to get to the heart of the message today in verses 5 through 8. The two of them, Barnabas and Saul, went on their way to, by the Holy Spirit, and they went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. So even though the church thought that they were sending them out, Really, in verse 4, it says that the Spirit was sending them out. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. And John was with them as their helper. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. And there they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Barjesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. The proconsul an intelligent man sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the sorcerer, for that's what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. So here we are, ground zero. The scene is set and the battle is on for the soul of a man named Sergius Paulus. 
Now, what we know of Sergius Paulus is this. He was a, a governor, so he was in the government. Uh, he was not real high in the government. He was just a governor of a region, but he was in the government. He was an intelligent man, a smart guy, Luke tells us. And we get the sense that he was a spiritual hungry guy as well. You see, he's heard of the way. He's heard of Christianity. He knows that this is a sect of Judaism, and he wants to know more, and that's why he sends for Barnabas and Saul. He is interested. But there's, here's the problem. There's now on this battlefield, on one side, you have the Holy Spirit and the gospel. But on the other side, the enemy has brought in some reinforcements as well. We are... We are described, we are introduced to this guy named Bar-Jesus, or Elymas, uh, which meant sorcerer. He was this sorcerer, a, a Jewish prophet, but a false prophet, which would make sense because if you're a Jew and you're dabbling in sorcery, you're not following what God wanted you to do. You're already a false Jew. So he was not actually bringing the, the full word of God to anyone. He's an apostate. He's mixing his faith in Judaism with all sorts of pagan ideas like horoscopes and mysticism. And so this sorcerer is connected, though, with the governor, Sergius Paulus. He was his attendant. And you can kind of feel your way through this and read between the lines to understand that perhaps Sergius Paulus had been seeking answers to life. He had been struggling. He had been looking at religion. And he is now giving credence to this guy, Elemis, because Elemis seems to have the right answers. You know, folks, people are out there looking for answers. They really are. They're seeking some kind of answer to their life and to the struggles of their life. And there's a lot of people out there willing to give them their opinion as to where the answers are found. You'll find that in most modern mission uh, efforts, that the people who are opposing the gospel are not atheists. They're actually people of other religious groups that find the gospel threatening because the gospel is a freedom gospel, a gospel that says self-righteousness has no place in God's kingdom because it's not do, 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 it's done. And so most of the opposition out there is, is from other religious groups that don't like the gospel. You know, Jesus had to deal with that. The, the, the biggest um, problem that he encountered were the religious leaders who did not like his message. And a lot of times, even Christians, we don't like the message. We, we want to go to the self-righteous message because that seems to be so much more comfortable to us because we now know we've done all the things we have to do. So many times Christianity misses the point as well as people are trying to think of all the things that they can get done for God so that they might win his approval. Or you might find a pastor distracted, caring more about what people will think of him and his sermons rather than to present the real truth of God, whether that steps on people's toes or not. And then, of course, you can get those horror stories of the color of the carpet or the times of the service, or whatever. All those things becoming way more important to the life of a believer than reaching out with the gospel to save men's souls. You see, Scripture tells us that religion is based on a relationship. 
Our faith should be shown by how we live our lives. Real religion sees the church as a, as a hospital for recovering sinners as much as a gymnasium to, to build up practical faith. Real religion will proclaim that the Bible is not just for inspiration. It is for transformation. Because that's really what we see the power of God wanting to do. And that's all the things that the enemy wants to fight against, by the way. All those things that make our faith formidable to the devil, to the powers of the darkness. So here is Sergius Paulus. He wants to know the answers. He's interested in spirituality. And on one side you have Paul bringing in the gospel... And on the other side, you have this pseudo-religious philosophy espoused by Elymas. And the battle for Sergius Paulus' soul is on, let's get ready to rumble, right? Very interesting. Verse 9 tells us this. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elymas and said, and I'm, I'm going to stop there because some of you go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Saul, now called Paul. What's up with that? Well, from this point on, he's going to be known by his Greek name, Paul. Saul was actually very uniquely chosen by God to be the Gentile apostle. Why? Well, because it shows us the fact that he's got Saul as a name and Paul as a name. This is what we now know about Paul. At birth, Paul was born into a very multicultural society. Being a Hebrew, he was given a Hebrew name, Saul, because he was born to Jewish parents. But Paul, being his Greek name, showed that he was actually a Roman citizen. He had been born in Tarsus, which was a Roman outpost. And so, though he was born a Jew, he was actually also born a Roman citizen. So you have Saul representing his Jewishness. You have Paul representing his Roman citizenship. And being from Tarsus, he would have been immersed in the Greek culture. So ethnically, Paul is Jewish. Legally, he's Roman. Culturally, he's Greek. Talk about the perfect guy to take this message out into the world from Jerusalem and beyond. So with that, let's get back to the story. Saul, now known as Paul, has no filter. Have you ever known somebody who has no filter? They just tell you the way it is, right? Here, here's what he says there in the next few verses, starting in verse 10. He's looking straight at Elymas, and he says, you are a child of the devil. Talking about how to win friends and influence people. You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind, and for a time you will be unable to see the light of the sun. Ouch. A couple things here. Realize that Paul understood where the battle was. He is not attacking Sergius Paulus. He is not making that his, his focus. He understands that Sergius Paulus is being influenced by the wrong things, and he's willing to confront it right then and there. And to call a lie, a lie. Not beating around the bush. Not trying to be politically correct. Number two, as you look at that, 
It's very interesting that he would choose physical darkness to, to bring upon uh, this, this guy, Elymas. Why? Well, because he says, you've been living your life in the dark. You thought you knew the way. But spiritually, you're in darkness. So guess what? Physically, you're going to be in darkness too. Now, that would be very, very interesting because if you remember Paul's story, when he was on the road to Damascus to take Christians into Jerusalem so that they might be tried and killed, it was him that saw the light of Jesus and he went into darkness as well. So he knew that darkness sometimes has the power to bring people back to seeking the true light. And so I I believe it was very, very appropriate that he would put Elymas into physical darkness. And as he does that, look at verse 12. It says, okay, when the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, saw what had happened, he believed. He believed, for he was amazed, not at the miracle, not at the uh, bringing the blindness to Elymas, but he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Paul was willing to do what he needed to do to bring Sergius Paulus to an understanding of who Jesus is. I, I love what the theologian Charles Spurgeon once said. He said, listen, if sinners will be damned, at least let them leap into hell over our bodies. You see what he's trying to say there? That we would actually try to stop this from happening. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. You see what he's talking about? To physically try to stop people from going into perishing darkness, a godless eternity. It says... If hell must be filled, let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. Understanding what our job as believers are. The result of this battle is that Sergius Paulus is saved come hell or high water. And Paul doesn't even know Sergius Paulus. But you know people who don't know Jesus. Are you content to just let them go their way? And never stand up for the truth? Are you content to just let them go on to hell? Because you're saved, you're fine, you're good, you're going to heaven. That's all, that's all many of us care about. And yet we are engaged, we're told in the Bible, for a, in a battle for men's souls. We are told in 2 Peter chapter 3, the Lord is not willing for anyone to perish. The Lord is not willing for anyone to perish but that everyone to come to repentance. Paul was not willing for Sergius Paulus to perish, but to come to repentance. How about us? Are we wanting anyone to perish? Or are we willing to stand in the gap for people to understand our role as part of the royal priesthood, to stand in the gap, to see people's lives changed? to know that the power of Jesus far outweighs any of the other powers in this world and to stand our ground so that God's glorious light can be once again seen in people's lives that are living in darkness. So ultimately, are you willing? Are you willing to change your mindset, to change this church from a cruise ship 
where we are all about you and your comfort and actually turn this into a battleship? Are we willing to actually listen to what Troy York just said and say, you know what, I think I could probably spend one week in the nursery if that's where I'm needed? Or maybe I can work one or two days of VBS if that's where I'm needed. Well, but that's uncomfortable sometimes. And that's, that puts us out of our way. And it's more than just a Sunday morning. Are you willing to stop looking at this as a cruise ship? And start looking at it as a battleship? That's ultimately what our whole existence is about. Are we willing to engage in the battle for men's souls It seems as if the moment that we sign up to become a disciple, we are called to take up our, our what? Oh, do you understand what that meant to the disciples back in the first century? You you see to us now, and I say, well, this is my cross to bear. Well, what I'm saying by saying this is my cross to bear is that this is my burden that I must shoulder and be inconvenienced by. If you were a disciple in the first century and Jesus told you to take up your cross, you know what a cross meant to a first, Christian, a first century believer? It meant death. There was no way that you were just carrying a cross just to carry a cross. And it wasn't just to put around your neck to show people that you were a believer. When Jesus said that if you're going to come after me, you must carry your cross daily, that meant you would be willing to die daily. Oh, see, that's not what our message is anymore. We just say, hey, would you like to come to heaven? You could be a Christian. Come to heaven, come to heaven, come to heaven. It's a get out of hell free card, which is true. Heaven awaits us and it's a free gift. Amen. But that's not why we were saved. We were saved so that other people might get saved as well. And that we have been engaged to put our will down at the altar every day so that God can live through us, shine through us, to bring more people into the light. We're to follow Jesus' example of serving to the point of giving up our own lives in order for people to be rescued from the clutches of the enemy. So, in conclusion... Three things I would like for you guys to to keep in mind. Number one, notice that none of this happened without the leading of the Holy Spirit. You can try evangelistic efforts, but if you're not waiting for the Holy Spirit to lead you, to call you, to tell you where to go, to tell you who to talk to, then you might get frustrated. But if you are truly seeking where God wants you to be, and you're in prayer about that on a consistent basis saying, God, who do you want me to talk to this week? Once you begin to rely on the Holy Spirit, he's the one that leads you down to the fruitful engagement with people. By listening to the the Spirit, seeking where he wants us to go, who he wants to talk with, then our efforts will be so much more fruitful and fulfilling. Number two, we must not be afraid to confront what is not true. We live in a society that says, oh, you've got your truth, I got my truth, it's all going to get us to God. That's not what I believe. I've got a problem with that, by the way, and you should as well. You should as well. But it's not because you are so arrogant that says your way is the only way. I had a run-in with a gal in my theater group down in Sacramento who said, boy, you Christians are awfully arrogant. You say you've got the only way to get to God. 
And in a stroke of Holy Spirit, I said, well, you know what? It's kind of hard for us to, to say differently when our own founder said that. That's not us. We're not saying that we're better than everybody because we've got this answer that nobody else has got. We've got a Savior who said, He is the way. If we believe that any way can get to God, then we won't be telling people about Him. But if we can believe that we can confront the lie with the truth of Jesus, then we can stand our ground and we can point people back to the source, the true source of life. Paul did not back down. He called the lie for the lie. And because of that, someone was saved. Thirdly, this is for you to do at home, since we won't finish the chapter this morning. I want you to read what happens after this. Paul gives his very first sermon. And what you're going to find is that he's going to get a couple different responses. There's going to be some people who say, yes, that's what I want. And he's going to get some people say, nope, that's not who I want to be. That's not what I want to do. What's my point? When you take this gospel message out, it's not your job to convict people. It's not your job to convince them. It's your job to take a message out there because ultimately it's their choice. We've got the message. We've got the passion. But ultimately, it's the Spirit of God that needs to work in their life, not you. You just need to be faithful with that true message. Sergius Paulus had to make up his mind. What you're going to find out in chapter 13 is other people had to make up their mind as well. You and I are not called to convict or to convince That's the job of the Holy Spirit. It's our job, though, to live redemptive lives and to speak redemptive words in a dark and chaotic world and let the Holy Spirit do the rest.